0: Hey everyone, great news. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Hipsters of the Coast. They're the mages with the curly beards and the vegan potion options. Hipsters of the Coast is the premier news and strategy blog for the Magic the Gathering community. They have a unique perspective on things and Kitchen Table Magic is honored to be joining their lineup. If you're listening to me right now from Hipsters of the Coast, I'm pleased to meet you. You're going to love all of the guests I have lined up for Season 3. And be sure to check out past episodes at kitchentablemagic.org. If you're new to the Hot Seat blog, head on over to hipstersofthecoast.com to get strategy and content for all of your favorite formats. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by cardkingdom.com. The newest unset is available for pre-order now. Unstable is looking fantastic with crazy contraptions, inside jokes, strange math, and squirrels. Oh, lots of squirrels. And most importantly, there's John Avon's full art Borderless Basic Lands in Unstable. You can pre-order them now and support the show using our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com/ktm. Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. They invite you to join their in-store stream at twitch.tv/paragoncitygames for weekly Legacy and Standard events. Jay, can you just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jay Schneider. I am the original designer of the
1: Sly Deck, and I also created the Mana Curve. I worked at Wizards R&D for several years, where I was in charge of Duels of the Planeswalker.
0: Now I run my own game company. What is the strangest thing you've seen in Magic R&D?
1: Well, I think the strangest thing is more of, best phrase is a question, why is there a giraffe head sticking out of one of the tiles in (laughs) R&D?
0: Okay, why was one of the giraffe heads sticking out of the tiles?
1: So that no one can see the hole in the ceiling tile.
0: (laughs) Okay. Was there a common problem with holes in ceiling tiles?
1: So, Magic r and you know, you're there for a long time with a lot of people who you know and friends. And, you know, you're playing Magic. And it can be long days. You know, 10, 12, 14 hours, even when you're pushing a deadline. And... People get, I don't know, rambunctious, shall we call it? (laughs) Cabin fever. At times, cabin fever. Um, Didn't get outside enough to play any basketball or whatever. And there was a game called Nutball that we used to occasionally play with a ball inside of the pit where you basically bounce the ball really hard at someone else without trying to hit their desk and everything on it and the magic cards. And occasionally, this ball would bounce a little high. Like, break a ceiling tile Which, you know, services and, you know Any of the supervisors probably wouldn't have Realized the boyish charm of the behavior, shall we say And so, in in order to make it so they couldn't tell that the ceiling tile was broken We took a stuffed giraffe and stuffed it Sort of head down through the tile So that no one would see the tile was broken
0: Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. I'm talking to legendary player Jay Schneider, the creator of the first Burn Deck, popularly known as Paul Sly Red. Jay created Sly Red because it was playtested to beat his good friend, Paul Sly who ironically was an avid blue player. In doing so, Jay created the concept of the Mana Curve, which is now a foundation of how magic is played and how decks are built. Jay also worked for Wizards R&D, where he helped playtest paper products and had a big role in developing the hugely successful Duels of the Planeswalker game for Xbox. Jay's work in the magic community has made a significant contribution, so I hope you enjoy my interview with the legendary Jay Schneider. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I'm here with the wonderful Jay Schneider. Jay, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for inviting me over. I am so excited. We're here on your kitchen table. Very flavorful.
1: Yes, it's one of the IKEA specials that I have all have been using for about 20 years now.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, for the listening audience, Jay is a very special guest. If you are new to magic or fairly new to magic, you may not understand the contributions that Jay has made to the world of magic and gaming as a whole. And in this episode, you're going to hear why. So let's start off just like with all things from the beginning. Jay, where did you grow up and how did you find magic?
1: So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and with a side stint in the the Army. I came back to Atlanta where I was introduced to magic uh, along with a couple of friends
0: of mine. Um, one of whom happened to be Paul Sly. That's great. And you know, what's so interesting is when I first started playing Magic, everyone was just like, learn how to build a decent deck. And I said, well, what is a decent deck? And they said, well, you know, there's a Paul Sly deck out there. Why don't you learn how to build that? And also, there's some guy who wrote a thing about it once. Jay, can you tell us who Paul Sly is? So,
1: Paul Sly is um, one of my best and oldest friends. Um, He's um, certainly a great Magic player in his own right, Um, has played in in several of the earliest pro tours and even the major events we had in Atlanta before there were pro tours. We used to have 500 to 1,000 person tournaments just in the Atlanta area with prizes held by the people who ran DragonCon and our local tournament organizers. And what decks did Paul build? Uh, Paul universally built decks that are closest to Drago. Drago, uh, mono blue. Um, his decks would have usually eight counter spells, four of them being mana drains. Um, what made his deck better than Drago, um, you know, pre-propaganda days, uh, was his ability to efficiently use the mana drain uh, mana because he always ran Jandam tone which would be used for more counter spells or his kill wasn't the Sarah Angel like everyone else uh, but whether it was the Triskillian which was a perfect sink for mana drain mana you know and of course you want to talk about a clock it's uh, not just a four four it's also could double as a wrath of God when needs be for a bunch of weenies
0: so that's so fascinating because whenever I I did an internet search for the Paul slide deck. I would see a bunch of red cards. Now, Jay, am I crazy here or can you help me out with that?
1: <laughs> no, you're not crazy at all. Um, Paul, in a weird way, rose to fame um, at the trials for one of the earliest uh, pro tours. And what happened was Paul and I playtest together. The deck that I was playing beat his constantly and badly and he needed a deck to play, and... I had to go off to see my mother in Detroit. I wasn't going to be in town, so I literally handed him my deck, my cards, and of course he'd been playing the other side of it. He then proceeded to win the tournament, the early qualifier, relatively easily with a deck that no one on the pro tour scene had ever seen anything like. Um, some of the people in Atlanta had at some of the earlier tournaments because I had won some of the tournaments that DragonCon had run. Um, with this deck before, but in general, the internet audience and the audience at large had never seen it. So, these early tournaments, the tournament organizers um, posted the winning decks. And this was the first of this happened. I mean, the internet's brand new at this time. You've got, uh, information is kind of hard to come by. You either bought the duelist, which was at best a month or two out of date. You went to, um, alt.rec.games.mtg something or other and mtg strategy. And that was pretty much what you did for information, these news groups. David Doust was the tournament organizer at the time. He took the decks and he published an article saying, called Paul Sly's um, Red Deck.
0: And people just abbreviated that to the Sly Deck. And that was back in 1993, 1994? Correct. Okay. So somehow your deck, your deck creation, and your innovation for deck building. Ended up in Paul's hands, he won with it, and then everyone just kind of named it after him.
1: Well, the tournament organizer, reasonably, I mean, it was the standard to name decks after people. You know, you have a deck and someone's playing it, and, you know, you give it their name. I mean you know, Brian Weissman's deck was the Weissman deck, you know, initially. So, it made sense that he did that. He didn't <laughs> know the story behind it. I mean, David's a good friend of mine even today, the chairman organizer. But, you know, he it, was a,
0: it wasn't even necessarily a mistake. It was, you know, Paul did play the deck. That is just too funny. Okay. So, now we understand how that kind of a mix-up could have occurred. Jay, there's another name for the Paul Sly deck. What name is that? So, the original name for the Sly deck is Giba. So,
1: the name Giba comes from the LARP that I ran. So, a long, long time ago, um, I set up a chapter of the New England role-playing organization down in Atlanta. And it grew rather large. Large enough that there's now – it basically broke into two organizations, one of which became part of NERO, the other that became part of SOLAR. But this is a pool of like 500 people, which is kind of amazing. And of course, goblins in any fantasy LARP environment are an important thing. Um, somewhere along the way, some of our goblins realized that the goblins needed a language, it didn't need to be very complex. As a matter of fact, it only needed one word. So every goblin in the LARP only said Giba. And Giba could be something like, Giba, Giba, Giba! You know, and it all dep- dep- depended on expression and what else the goblin was doing, but that was the only word. When I was originally looking for a name, my playtest partner at the time, one of them, was Andy Wolfe. And he said, what type of deck is that you're building? Some sort of Giba deck he had played in my LARP. And I said, that's close enough. And that's, the name became Giba.
0: Oh, I love it. Yeah. So, all the goblins and it, it's kind of like Hodor or I am Groot.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Except it's the only word in the goblin language and that LARP is still going. Um, Solar
0: is still alive and active after 25 years and going strong wow sweet so if any of you are in that group and you're here listening to this podcast uh just hit me up on twitter and say hi <laughs> that's so cool one of the hallmark features of we'll just call it the slide deck right the slide <laughs> everyone else does <laughs> yeah the hallmark feature of the slide red deck is that there's a very efficient mana curve Of creatures. Now, before that, Jay, there wasn't really the concept of a mana curve. And you really were the person to really coin that term and really apply that to Magic the Gathering. Deck creation theory, play theory, it's it's informed almost every decision that players make from 1993-1994 onward. How did you come up with that concept of the Mana Curve? So, uh,
1: I was, you know, at Georgia State um, taking a linear algebra class. And, you know, before class, I was using the internet because internet wasn't something you had at home. Yeah, you, know, you had to go to get to a news group, to the computing centers at your university or somewhere rare. And I was reading magic and I was printing some things out and I was reading about different. Decks and stuff, and at the same time, and this is of course in the notebook in my lab while I'm supposed to be listening to my professor who's droning on about some sort of you know uh, finding the you know the slope of a curve in linear algebra, but the concept was hey, you know, the same way you can sum the progressions under the slope of a line um, in this linear algebra stuff the professor's talking about, I could apply this to magic. What if I looked at the progression of mana and what the average mana that I would have per turn was, make a graph, then model against that um, a creature curve so they lined up one-to-one and just do a best fit for creatures According to expected mana along those same ratios, um, you know, that I could then have this curve of creatures that aligned up with the curve of mana that the deck generates. And as long as I know what the curve of mana is, I know what creatures and spells to put in the deck. And suddenly there was this concept. Um, The name stuck because I, you know, back in the day, and I was trying to explain it, and I kept trying to explain it kind of the way that I just did to y'all. And one of the interviews, I said, you know, sort of this mana curve. And I was like, well, that's a good term for it. I'll call it the mana curve. And (laughs) ever after that, of course, the name stuck.
0: I love it. I love it. And so, and at that point, I'm pretty sure every other magic player you've had this conversation with, they've just like mind blown, right?
1: Uh, half of them look at me like, you're kidding, really? There wasn't always this concept since the dawn of time. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I can't say that I invented the mana curve. It was sort of there in nature. I discovered it more than anything else. It was sitting there and, you know, that was just sort of the concept. And, of course, once I had the mana curve, I built a deck to use it. And it was really using the color that sort of best fit it based on the commons and uncommons, I, mean, I didn't have a huge collection back then. This was, at, you know, I mean, you had what cards you could get. It was hard to find cards. I could buy Legends, but that, honestly, that's kind of terrible. You know, there weren't enough beta and alphas. So you couldn't find those without paying ridiculous amounts for them so putting together a deck, my first uh, mana curves yeah, I mean the 1-1's for 1 it's not like I had enough Goblin Balloon Brigades, I had to fill in with Mons Goblin Raiders I was good on Ironclaws luckily, but I had problems at the 3 slot, I didn't have enough Hurlon Minotaurs, so I had to, you know, I put in Orcish Artillery which were great but, you know, it was still kind of hit and miss, and then at the 4 slot, I remember I only had 1 Dragonwell for the longest time. Thankfully, um, the top slot was the X slot, and that really solved part of the problem of the mana curve because it started to trail off into numbers that weren't whole numbers, but you could cut and add it all together and call that X after 4. And so I just put in two and a half X cards, literally two or three, depending on various details. I eventually had enough. So I had three Fireballs, which was my X spell of choice because it's the exiest of Xs.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. Fireball is the exiest of X spells. And, you know, listener, really kind of take this moment in because really what Jay is trying to explain here is that he just took this mathematical theory, was just like, this makes sense, went home pulled out every card in his limited collection to really match those parameters and just kind of put a deck together. Jay, now people weren't wowed by your genius right off the bat. People were a little on the fence about this quote-unquote innovation, right?
1: That's the understatement. Um, for the first at least year, I was constantly mocked for playing brass Men and go- Iron Claw Orcs and Goblin Balloon Brigade because everyone else at the time, you would play your big, fat creatures. I mean, if you were playing a red deck, you were expected to play your Shivan Dragon. And, you know, you were expected to play your Shivan and a bunch of big X spells. And if you played, and maybe some Stone Rains. And if you played Black, you would play Juzams, and you'd play Sengir Vampires. And... And, you know, it was the format where... White Weenie was the only small deck that people didn't mock, and that was really only because of White Knight having pro-black. And of course, the sly deck would absolutely crush the White Weenies of the day. I mean, I had bolts for their their vaunted White Knights, and orcish artillery is the worst thing they've ever seen. I mean, they don't know what to do. They could practically scoop most of the time. I mean, they, you know, they may have had a, a a couple of swords, but that was their only out. And that's, you know, drawing pretty thin, especially in a deck, you know, you're drawing to a one-to-one to to hope someone doesn't draw another one in a deck that's already probably edged against you. And of course, all those mid-range and large decks, you know, they were gone. I mean, it doesn't take
0: long for one plus two plus two or three plus four to kill you. That's right, it doesn't. So Jay, really this concept of a properly built curve with a nice aggro plan, which just really just close out whole matches really efficiently.
1: There were some other elements that went in. So, I mean, you sort of hit the the basis is a nice curve. The second was actually, the slide deck was a little more control than um, you think about it. The Orcish Artillery were another great card, but also the deck rapidly went into things like Orcish Librarians when those got printed in Ice Age. It actually kind of liked Orcish Captain of all the weird things uh, from Fallen and it wound up putting from antiquities atogs and um, it used black vices but only because it could use atogs to feed them to and it also comboed well with brass men, and you know you had sort of a backup finisher especially with the artillery that you could, it was aggro control um,
0: along a mana curve really defines it the best. And that level of effectiveness just kind of really rubbed a lot of the magic players at the time kind of the wrong way. They just kind of looked at you funny and they're like, you know, I've got these great cards, right? Which you were talking about really powerful cards, like Ancestral Recall and Time Twister and Juzam Jin. And you were like, I've got all these, and Singer Vampire, I've got all these great powerful cards and you're just showing up with this pile of garbage and you're just steamrolling people.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was this turn where somebody had his Chains of Mistopheles deck, which was one. I still don't know what Chains does. But he had Chains and Black Vices and Time Twisters and, you know, he had some combo that went off about turn four or five, especially if you had cards in the hand. And it was like, you know, draw a bunch of cards. Now I'm going to, wait, I bolt you. I bolt you. I bolt you. Go ahead. Okay, I discard zero. Um, are you still alive? Uh, you know. Oh, I get to draw. Draw more? Yeah, great. Okay.
0: I'll take three and I bolt you. That'll solve it. That is hilarious. Okay, and eventually you started to write little articles about the slide deck would look like from a mana curve for other colors, for like white and blue and black and green. And, and
1: That was after I had my column. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it was because the mana curve, you know, works no matter what your curve looks like. And the first thing that kind of drove me there was thinking about green, because green back even back in that day, you'd have lanoir elves or Andor wild growth um, or bird of paradise. I, I was much more into the land war because they could hit. I mean, a bird was just a land, uh, effectively, for that. And so I tested out the mana curves with that. And honestly, the green sly and the blue sly, which played with fish, and um, the white weenies-ish sly, the red one just worked better. There was this affinity. The X spells were really key. The burn is just hyper-efficient removal, but also the dual-purpose nature and actually the card-efficient creatures. I mean, there's so many matches that the Orcish Artillery would win for me because it would just sit out there and my Iron Claws would go through unstopped
0: while um, the Artillery just controlled the board. That's amazing. And, you know, what I'm really kind of pre- present to right now, and I hope you are too, listener, is really thinking about the impact of this discovery, Jay. Like you were saying, you didn't invent the Mana Curve per se, but you really discovered it in kind of mathematical nature as it existed already present in the game. The concept and utilization of this kind of thinking and this kind of theory in the way not only do we play our decks, but also how we build and craft and adjust our decks. I play a lot of Modern Jund, and when I play Modern Jund, what really draws me to it is the curve. Turn one thought sees or inquisition, turn two, Bob, Liliana, and then it's like There, that's the game right there. You can just kind of take things over from there. Another first, Jay, that our listeners might not know about is uh, you asked me earlier who my favorite columnists were, who my favorite writers were, you know, and I was talking about, oh, I really love, um, you know, Craig Wesco and I really love it when Patrick Chapin writes and then you're talking about all these thought leaders. Well, you just so happen to be the first Magic featured columnist as well. Can you tell us about how that happened? (laughs) Absolutely. So,
1: this is one that I I feel like I stumbled into more than anything else. I didn't invent the concept of the feature columnist. I didn't create the first magic information site. I kind of got shoved into uh, this position. So, um, David Doust, as I mentioned him previously, he had put in that news group article, but he was the TO for the region. Um, being the TO, often like today, he ran the big store. And he ran a company called, I think it was New Wave mail order at the time, and his store was originally called New Wave, eventually to become one of the neutral grounds. You know, New Wave was one they Kind of had this great idea. Hey, Magic sells great in our stores. Let's sell them online. You know, we'll put a list of cards and we'll sell them. And, you know, it doubles up on our revenue. And I, I know everyone does it today, but David was really, you know, business development visionary, you know, circa 1994 here. Um, and so he thought, Well, where do I advertise? I can't advertise on news groups because they kicked you off for that during those days. And this was the internet was whether you used it for commerce was questionable. Then they said then he's like, Oh wait, I can sponsor this new website called the Dojo and the Magic Dojo, um, uh, run by Frank, was this just, you know, amazing sight. He collated, and from the, you know, different magic news groups, all the best articles, and he created, basically, his disciplines of magic. And the slide deck was the discipline of red. Well, I was in David's store, playtesting or something, as I was wont to do, um, at the same time that David was talking uh, to Frank about how he can, you know, help bring more people to the so they'll see his advertising. And David suggested, hey, how about we have a regular columnist? And Frank's like, sure, who are we going to have? Um, and Frank and David's like, well, the guy who wrote the slide deck stuff, you know, he's sitting right here and he's a friend of mine. I bet he'll do it. And he said, Jay, you mind writing an article every week or so about the different decks you have? And I'm like, I don't know. Sure, why not? Uh, I'm happy to do it. You know, I'm a college student with not enough going on in my life. So, I started writing a weekly column for um, the dojo, soon to be followed by lots of other people, many of whom were far, far better than me. I wrote the and the column. We didn't even know what to call a feature deck column. So, it, <laughs> I mean, I'm embarrassed by the name. It's The Decks of Jay Schneider. Uh, but The Decks of Jay Schneider, I ran the column for 10 years and... You know, it featured, you know, over the last, you know, over the first decade, I guess, of Magic. I certainly contributed to many of the top decks that were being played. Atlanta was one of the better hubs of Magic at the time. Um, another, you know, Pittsburgh Team CMU was a hub that we had a strong relationship with. So we had a constant influx of people and we traded a lot of tech. Uh, between them. And Atlanta had a lot of I mean, I had great people to work with. Um Andy Wolf was my primary play tester. He was a regular um top eight participant in Pro Tours. Um Saul Malka uh with his black green is still a pretty you know strong player today. And the Rock deck. I mean I remember play testing and working with The Rock with him for ever. I mean, Hell because yeah. he would never play anything but The Rock.
0: And you know, I'm a big fan of The Rock. I bow down to The Rock because Jund is just modern The it's Rock. Modern Rock. Yeah, I love it. Black Green X, Black Green for life. Mm-hmm. You know, Jund for life. You know, Saul's deck was awesome and he's a great guy and,
1: you know, it's still on the Pro Tour and I, last I saw, he was still playing Black Green <laughs> and, which is just great. And I mean, he even plays Black Green only and like
0: sealed and draft. It's just amazing. That's dedication. (laughs) It is. So, the early writings of your feature columns, you wrote about decks, you did a deck tech, you had the deck list, you explained why, what pieces, synergies, and things like that. And then Dave would put a link at the bottom of that article being like, buy this deck. Absolutely. And,
1: <laughs> you know, remember, no one had ever written anything about, you know, decks before. No one knew how to do a deck listing. I, You know, do you do land first or do you do creatures first? What sort do you do? Alphabetical or cost? Creatures and enchantments and sorceries. I mean, I you know, at least in my first deck, I kind of made it up. I had nowhere to go with you know, you know, I had nothing to follow. So, well, New Wave was trying to sell cards, so buy this deck from New Wave for, you know, $149 or $99 or, um, and at that time, you know, my decks were, they quickly stopped being necessarily controversial, um, but then some of the new things that I would write up, because the decks that I designed, I, I was always on the hunt for the best deck ever. Back, you know, when Magic first started, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous to think that you can create the best deck of all time. I mean, you know, that doesn't even make sense as a concept, but it made sense before there were formats. Huh. I mean, if you think about it, when because when I started Magic was this game, <laughs> it makes sense to have the best deck in a game. Right. And then when you have tournaments, um, you know, and there is two formats, tournament and non-tournament, then having the best deck in tournament format makes sense. Uh, And that was sort of originally what I was targeting. And then the concept of standard came up. But even then, the concept of standard didn't really have rotation in it. It was just a way of breaking the format. There were standard cards and non-standard cards. Towards your original question, I, you know, I would certainly experiment and push the boundaries. Um, I often use cards that other people didn't, you know, have a natural attachment to, per se. I love the Aura Tog. And it was considered complete garbage at the time. But, you know, I had Aratog and Aluren, and I was able to make this weird three- or four-part four, four part combo. No one of which these combos would really work on their own, but all of them together worked nicely. During the time when High Tide was dominant, um, the deck that I wrote about was a Hosseran Ogris, Deck that can actually race tide playing these bizarre things that were just, I mean, I use Hosseran Ogris and Cloak of Confusion. I, I know you don't even know what these cards are, but they're things like black three twos for two and Cloak of Confusion basically let something have the hippie effect. Yeah, um, as discard. an enchantment, but it doesn't deal damage, 90% of the people at a tournament might be playing high tide. And if you could just beat that, you could actually dominate a tournament. But then again, I'm talking about publishing a deck where – You've got and (laughs) then in in a world full of better time twisters
0: and, you know, things like that. So, it was very easy to say that people called you crazy. People really mocked you for this. Mocked some of them. Yeah, mocked some of them because you were really putting just cards that were functional from someone inexperienced with deck building just was like, why? This doesn't make any sense. And often you had to actually play them at a
1: high level. I mean... You know, Nowadays, I guess, people who can play aggro decks gain more respect, but it took until really Mike Turian um, became a top pro and got into the Hall of Fame before people realized that there is an insane amount of skill in playing a, quote, simple creature deck to the level of a top pro to where you can beat a top pro playing a top control deck. You know, that wasn't true back in the day, but it often was with a lot of the decks I built.
0: Wow. Okay. So, you were just playing in tournaments, you were writing columns, you eventually also went on to do some judging and also some tournament organizing. Absolutely. So, time went on. I moved out to, you know, I went to grad school.
1: College, like all good things, must come to an end. I moved up to Eugene. Um, I found some playtest friends up there. Um, You know, Eugene was, um, Cy Cook um, is an example of someone who was on the pro tour, a good friend of mine, Sean, you know, play tested with me an immense amount of times. I don't know. I guess it was, I was still publishing a bit and still writing some articles, but I started judging them. And also, I had less time. You know, grad school kept me shockingly busy. And then I moved up to Seattle. And in Seattle, I actually remember I used my column to find a playtest group. I actually said, okay, folks, I'm moving to Seattle. I'm going to need somewhere to playtest. I'll be near the Microsoft campus. I would love to meet with some people. And uh, my column off and on went from, you know, was reasonably well read. I mean, it was When I started writing, my columns for free. And then columns, they started to charge for premium articles as the sites went in. I wasn't a big fan of it, I mean, you know, when they first started, Um, right or wrong. I said, you know, I'm happy to write columns for you, but they have to be free. And, you know, I didn't want to give up. I was fairly well placed. I was always on one of the larger sites. I never wrote for Star City, per se. Um, they didn't come into predominance till the very end of my writing career. Um, I was always with what would have been their competitors. And,. You know, so my columns were free, but they often had really large readership. Um, Frog in a Blender was an article that I wrote, which was a red-green deck that crushed Aratog, completely demolished it. It was the worst thing the Aratog deck had ever seen. It had a bunch of pro blue creatures and the wild mongrel and discard bolts and it would kill you comfortably on turn four and the poor aratog didn't know what to do with itself you could play it early without stuff in your graveyard just to have a blocker that's awesome you know for the aratog strategy or you could just get run under and it's not like you could terror the wild mongrel so that article had about 300,000 readers, and I think that was my peak um, in the late times. And posted an article, had a couple of invites, played tested with uh, people at the Crossroads Mall Food Court, actually, a team from Microsoft. You know, just started judging more and more. And eventually, Seattle had a problem with. Not enough judges. And it seems weird. This is Seattle, right? Right. Home of wizards. How on earth do they not have enough judges? Well, there's about 10 level threes and fours all working for wizards, none of whom judge the local events. Because they work with magic day in and day out, they're not judging, you know, a little podunk PTQ, even if it is in their hometown. We occasionally get the odd person from customer service. You know, I actually for a while was the senior level two in Seattle and there was no one higher than me. Because they, who didn't work for Watsy and none of them were available. Um, Matt Tabak came out and worked for me when he was a level one, uh, working his way through customer service. You know, but being the senior judge led to when the TO left town, I had, I picked up the reins and became TO for a while. So I was the premier TO for a few months. And then Tim Shields became the TO. He became the TO for a wider region. He was already Portland. And I became the Seattle assistant TO to Tim, or whatever they wanted to call it. And then I wound up working for Watsey, which sort of ended all that.
0: That is so cool, Jay, because uh, you talk about Tim Shields and listeners, if you don't know who Tim Shields is, I interviewed him for the season two premiere of Kitchen Table Magic and he has all these great stories about running tournaments and crazy stuff that happened in Grand Prix Las Vegas and all that stuff, but uh, really interesting. Tim is amazing. I actually still occasionally... Occasionally, like
1: once a year or so, come out and help Tim TO an event. Um, he called me in for Grand Prix Portland a couple of years ago when he needed someone to run a section and he had had a late minute vacancy. And Tim's
0: awesome. That is so cool. And Jay, eventually you went into Watsy R&D. You joined Magic R&D. So, um... As I was judging
1: and TOing, um I was working down at Fort Lewis. I was working for Northrop Groundman on contract to the military. Uh, basically, in their unit, they have one of the sections of the military. They have a command in charge of deploying new and exciting new equipment and called the G7. And um, I was one of the people working out of the G7. And my original project was ending. They were about to give me a new project, which was to be in charge of the Army's weather tracking system, which would have been really awesome. And at the same time, there was an opening at Wizards R&D for a digital R&D intern you know, I mean, magic games had always been in my life. Um, it goes back even further than we've talked about. When I was eight years old, I started playing chess professionally and I was a professional chess player until I was 13. Wow. That's so cool. For a while, I was the top-rated chess player under 13, you know, sort of the great hope to become the next Bobby Fischer. I had, you know, the U.S. Chess Foundation um, brought in chess coaches from Russia to train me in the Russian program, and, you know, I would be spending after school um, two hours a day plus all weekend studying chess with these um, big Russian chess best coaches, and I retired at 13. Wow. Um, but long and short, gaming was always been really part of my life, an important part. And so, there's this internship. Um, I talked to Tim about, you know, who I should talk to over there. And he sent me, you know, he gave me a few people to talk to, uh, which led to an interview. And the interview was kind of an amazing experience. Really? Well, um, so the interview was with the digital R&D team. And I was interviewed, I started off being interviewed by a couple of senior people. And the senior people want to know what most senior people are. You know, what are you going to do for us? What's your sort of, in my case, I was coming in as a digital development intern, which means in sort of what. Seen um, parlance, um, balancing, costing, refining, cleaning up games that are in digital um, that relate to magic IPs. You know, the things they were working on included things like magic board games, or if you all remember, God, it was codenamed Roadrunner. Um, the thing that Sony Online did that was a magic board game with little miniatures um, that was out for a while, that was one that I worked on. Um, but anyway, they were thinking about all of these style of projects and trying to get an idea of did I have, you know, was I a reasonable person to hire? I mean, I had a strong computer science background, so that wasn't a problem. And I certainly had. You know, my magic brown got me in the door. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, on a very side note, my last day at Wizards of the Coast, um, the Japanese office uh, are in there, you know, and- um, Aaron is walking them through R&D, introducing them to the various and sundry people in the pit. You know, here's Eric Lauer, you know, the mad genius over there is Mike Turian, you know, here's Mons Johnson. Oh, and that's Jay Schneider, um, the person who created the slide deck. <laughs> His- Last thing he said about me at R&D was the guy who created the slide deck. Nothing about the two years past that we'll get to, but the guy who created the slide deck. That's do buddy. Anyway, so the rest of the interview, then after I meet my bosses, there's 20 people interviewing me. They had to be on bleachers. I don't I mean, I thinking that in hindsight they couldn't have had bleachers, but it was maybe th- it was three rows of chairs, maybe six across. Um, about 10 I found it afterwards, 10 of the people wanted to beat the guy who created the slide deck. The other people were there because they were relevantly there for my second interview, maybe one or two because it was the interview before lunch and whoever was there would get a free interview lunch. Um, But they sat there and peppered me questions about every bit of digital gaming, magic gaming that I had ever done, or other gaming. Um, I was asked questions, so... Um, Mike Donay, who is one of the you know great magic players and great magic judges of all time. He was one of the earliest level fours, a top pro player. Um, I got into this huge argument with him during my interview. Not what you really want to do. And it was over um, World of Warcraft tournament PvP. I was a tournament um, arena player Um, And it was an argument over 2v2, Druid and Hunter versus Druid and Warrior. And specifically, who would win this 30-minute fight, why, and how the fight would go in detail. And at the end of it, we got almost a shouting match over what was happening. And by the way, I was wrong on it. Mike was actually right. But everyone in there had their own thing. Um, I remember Andreas Schubert asked me about my LARPing background. And, you know, I run a large um, LARP in Atlanta. It was quite the interview day.
0: That is hilarious. So, it wasn't just whoever needed to interview you for the job's purpose. It was like bleachers of people with a bone to pick. I kind of, yeah.
1: Or just interested in seeing the sly guy. That is so funny.
0: Well, you clearly got the job. (laughs) I got
1: the job. And, you know, um, Watsy HR forgot to call me and tell me. Oh. (laughs) I had actually sent a follow-up note saying, you know, thanks for interviewing me. You know, I assume since I haven't heard from you, I didn't get the position. And I get a call back from Dylan, what do you mean? You start on Monday. (laughs) 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 And then they realized that HR had sort of dropped the ball a little bit.
0: Oh, whoops. Yeah. That's so interesting, Jay. Okay, so you get to Watsy, you're working on stuff, and now you're working on digital. So, I mean, I get to Watsy my first day, and, you know, I've got a few friends
1: there. Uh, Mons, um, I got to be pretty good friends with Mons Johnson of Mons Goblin Raider fame. He's one of the earliest people, but also a great goblin deck builder. We used to play test together a bit, so I had an old playtest test buddy, um, Nate Heiss, who was an editor of mine at several of uh, the places. Um, same for Scott Johns, uh, and Eric Lauer came over to me. Eric, we'd run into each other once or twice before uh, back in the early day, but he knew that I was a strong deck builder, and you know, had he was working on. Jace versus Chandra hmm. and he wanted someone who was an expert at Chandra to help him out on it. So, the fr- you know, so I'm sitting here getting my first hour briefing from my boss and they're like, yeah, you're going to have to go down and CHR and you'll have to do this to get you know, all the processing stuff. And Eric comes up and asks my boss, whose name was Dylan, and, you know, can I borrow him to work on that? And I look at him and he's like, yeah, anytime you've got free time and Eric needs to use you for something, go and work with him. So, I'm suddenly playing Jace versus Chandra, fighting for my dear life, because Eric is a top pro, and in all fairness, is a better magic player than I am. You know, we're refining and making the very first head-to-head deck. That is hilarious. You know, that was sort of day one, which was awesome, and Eric is amazing to, you know, play tests with and everything else.
0: Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> fighting for your life. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> It was ugly, <laughs> and
1: not to mention the fact that the Jace deck was a little bit strong, but we got that balanced and fixed up.
0: Okay, Jay, and tell us about your digital contributions to magic.
1: After I've been there a couple of days, um, I think I had a few other fun little paper things to do. And um, then my boss, you know, sort of that chat where your boss sits you down and says, here's why you're here. You know, we didn't just bring you in here to take up a chair and uh, to play, you know, magic with Eric. We've got this project that we're working on, and the project we're working on is how to make magic more accessible for um, a younger audience, because right now the magic audience is aging, um, and we don't want, you know, we like where it's balanced at. We want to make sure there's not just constant growth to magic, but growth at a younger age. We want, you know, we have this huge rush from Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh!, but those are dying off and we need a replacement younger feedback loop. And, you know, what do you think you can do about it? And so, I said, well, so if the problem is the audience is aging, um, you know how we're doing these card inserts, let's put nutritional information. That way the audience (laughs) will live longer. You know, here's the food pyramid, make sure to follow it, tell players not to drink energy drinks while they play, you know, maybe something a little healthier.
0: That is too funny. Okay. And that didn't that didn't that,
1: that didn't fly. Uh, you know, they said they'd take it under consideration and, you know, I think Bill was the VP who was there um, and he looked to me a little funny and so did Randy. Um, and they're, of course, wondering why they hired me and, of course, the other thing that we had available was what we were really going to push. I got introduced about this time to someone who would be another one of my bosses, um, Frank Gilson. I don't know if you hear in your interviews, you've ever come across something called the Pacific Coast League, one of the earliest magic teams, PCL. He was a member of it, and I certainly remember it from back in the day. And Frank remembered me from back in the day. Cause remember that the time period from my going to work at Watsy in 2008, Uh, 2007, 2008, uh, from when I started playing Magic in 93, 94. And that was about the time of PCL. We're talking 13 years. Um, You know, we've all gone through college and worked, you know, as, you know, professionals in industry for five or six years, but we're, I'm beginning to see the people who I was hanging out when I was an undergrad, kind of awesome. And I got to hang out with Frank again. Um, but Frank and the team also included Matt Place, exactly in the same group. Matt Place was one of the early greats of Magic. And we came up with doing Magic for the Xbox, And, you know, when I say we came up with a concept, I would say that Frank was really pretty much the promoter and the originator of that idea. And Duels um, came out, you know, Duels was basically at that point in time codenamed Xylophone. It was developed um, out of house at Stainless Studios, but we were the Wizards of the Coast team. We designed all the creative, all the content, balanced all the decks, created all the challenges. Um, I don't know if you played many of the duels' challenges.
0: I have. It's really slick. I was very impressed because my brother who's a pro gamer introduced me to Duels of the Planeswalker. He was like, I I was just like, dude, you should play Magic and he was like, I do play Magic. And I was like, what? When? (laughs) Since when? He was like, here, let me show you and he busts out his like Xbox and I'm like, what? So it was a mind-blowing experience. It's really fun. It's really good. Did you
1: actually ever play the challenge portions? Not just the deck versus deck, but the magic, the puzzling ones. Yes. Um, Because those, because no one had done a magic, the puzzling for maybe 10 years. Rosewater hadn't been writing them, and I you know I had loved them back when I was there. So I got this wild hair that let's add a feature to duels where we have bring back these magic, the puzzlings, but you play through them. And so I got half a dozen people in R&;D to design challenges, and I designed basically the other half. And, you know, that gave us our 10 challenges for the first game. You know, we had an R&D solves puzzles day where I set up this line of tables and everyone in R&D came by and tried to solve them. And I timed how long it took, you know, identified who could. And it was, it was weird who could solve challenges and who couldn't.
0: <laughs> um, Especially when you work in R&D. <laughs> right. Well,
1: because there are people who, like we had one of our artists just Destroyed all the challenges, and some of the top pros couldn't solve some of the challenges to save their lives. (laughs) Um, So it was really pretty neat to do that. And anyway, duels, you know, at that point in time. after about six months, R&D, digital R&D, which was the part that I was with, we were all part of the pit, but we were one corner, um, got reorganized, and most of the other projects other than Duels um, were ended. And I was the sole person left um, on Duels of the Planeswalker. And, you know, it was it was kind of a shocking day. You know, the layoffs were pretty deep to the point that I lost seven layers of chain of command. I remember that when this happened, so, okay, I've lost my associate producer, my produ- ex- my producer, my manager, director, and VP. Wizards has this policy, whoever has the final authority over an expense code is a VP. And I'm their tools had an expense code. I'm looking to the left, I'm looking to the right, I'm the only one who has even knows this expense code exists, much less has access. I think I'm suddenly an intern VP. That's ridiculous. So I go to Bill Rose, who's the VP of R&D, and I go, Bill, um, I've got a couple of questions for you. So I've had seven layers of chain of command removed from me, and I believe that according to the policy handbook, the person with final um, access to an expense code is the VP, right? And he goes, yeah. Okay, well, I think I'm now intern VP. So I've got a couple of questions. One, when is the VP's meeting? And two, um, does Greg Leeds, that was the CEO at the time, sign all the time cards for the VPs or is it someone else? And Bill doesn't miss a beat. He looks at me and goes, I'll get you an email on when the VP's meeting is and add it to your calendar. And I'll, you know, and I sign all the time cards for all the VPs. Of course, Bill understood that I'm saying that I have no more bosses. <laughs> um, he quickly got me worth uh, a Wilpert who is. Another amazing ex deck player and someone who'd worked off and on on duels uh, from its inception. And he became my boss. And lots of your listeners know who Worth is from, you know, Magic Online. And he was the person I reported to effectively for the rest of my time at WOTC. And, you know, Worth is, of course, amazing and great. And, you know, we got duels launched. It became a hit. Yeah, it was for sure a hit. Um, it was so it was interesting that there's a lag in reporting for duels. Um, yeah you know, it's just the, from Microsoft. So we turn it on. And you know of course okay it's on. And of course Microsoft servers go down that day. <laughs> so day one sales we don't know what they are but it doesn't matter they're probably close to zero because Microsoft went down on our release day. Next day, though, you know, we're sales and we don't know anything for the weekend. We can just hope for the best. The numbers are coming in on Tuesday. So Magic R&D has a weekly meeting. Tuesday, everybody in R&D gets together and each of the groups, you know, report on things. And usually there's a guest speaker. And, um, I was having a duels rundown. And so it was myself and Matt Place. You know, we're talking about duels and you know, I'm talking about, you know, hey, hopefully, you know, we've got an expansion that's already built. Assuming the sales are good, we'll start working on expansion too. And at this point in time, Matt's, you know, we're sitting up sort of in the front, you know, there's fifty people in there, you know, just sort of getting the general report on things, you know, with light entertainment during the meeting. And Matt's like, Jay. You need to listen to this. I've got a report from Worth on Numbers. And he goes, so I've got the numbers in for Worth. Um, the week one sales, you know, are 70,000. And I'm like, that's impossible. Uh, yeah, our estimate was 17,000. 70,000 would make it the best-selling first week of any game on Xbox Live. And he goes, no, 70,000. I just fall out of my chair. I mean, you know, I literally have never fallen out of a chair and it was just, whoo. So I'm like, okay, guys, I can't really believe right now that it's 70,000 sales that qualifies for Hall of Fame and, and Xbox in the first week. Nothing does that. Wow. Uh, And, you know, I'm going to pretend it's 17,000 because 17,000 sales, which is within the realm of believability, is. You know something enough to get to expansion two, so we should talk about expansion two. And I fill it out, refusing to accept that it could be seventy, and it was seventy for wow. week one. You know, I they've the numbers since been broken, but that was when they took a triple A title and released it, and it made a
0: hundred thousand. But it was a triple A title. It was a triple so. A
1: title. They reduced the ten bucks and released on XPLA like Battlefield or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, that was sort of the release of Duels. And so Duels did well. Um, the expansion, which we'd already had, um, designed and ready, we patched it up and got it out the door. Have to mention two people who were critical on Duels because Duels wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mike McCalion or Adam Dixon. And I haven't had mentioned either of those. Mike was technically just supposed to be the editor for Duels. Uh, Mike was the editor, the person who corrected me every time I was wrong, the person who knew everything about Xbox, the person who figured out the exact right interface that made Duels feel so good. Uh, Mike was amazing. And Adam Dixon was a supportive, helpful brand manager who took care of everything that I did wrong and then innovated things and did everything you'd want a brand manager to do. So, that team sort of took on expansion two and three. About that point in time, um, Wizards was reorganizing again for reasons that are kind of, in well, not that involved, um, they involve The involved uh, the financial crisis, Hasbro had a hiring freeze. I was under contract under that time. And so when my contract couldn't be renewed, um, they had to lay me off because Hasbro had a hiring freeze and they couldn't hire anyone at Watsy for about another six months. So that's how my time at Watsy sort of went.
0: Wow, that is so fascinating. Gosh, I mean, just thinking about how all of that went, that's just so interesting. Okay, everyone, we're gonna have more from Jay coming up in a little bit but for now, let's take a quick break from our sponsors. Jay, I wanted to ask you really quick, what do you have for our Patreon supporters? So, for our Patreon
1: supporters, we have Ironclaw Orcs. So, the Ironclaw Orc really became the symbol of the slide deck in a lot of ways. Um, it was a 2-2 two, two for 2, which perfectly hit the efficiency of the mana curve. It had a meaningless disadvantage, which even accentuated it more. I mean, the iron claw Orcs disadvantage Disadvantage is that it has problems blocking um, creatures of power greater than one. And the thing is that one of the basic tenets of the Sly deck is if you're blocking, you're losing. So it was kind of a meaningless disadvantage, and it was just sort of the standout creature. You were always happy to play it. I mean, while the Ironclaw Orc seems like a, just a disadvantaged grizzly bear. The thing is that because the path was always open for a slide deck, um, an iron claw orc would kill the opponent, whereas a grizzly bear would just get blocked by whatever or, you know, be a meaningless part of the attack line.
0: That's right. It is kind of like a goofy grizzly
1: bear. <laughs> <It is. laughs> But it is, it was the most mana-efficient,
0: you know, creature that Red had in that slot. That's great. And, you know, I've got 30 of them here in my hands that Jay has signed. I have 23 from 4th edition, which are still nice and old, but they're white-bordered. I have 6 from Beta that are black-bordered, and I have 1 from Alpha. And the one that is signed black-bordered Ironclaw orcs from Alpha is going to our highest patreon supporter brian who supports the show at the sanctum level so thank you very much brian you're getting an alpha iron claw orcs signed by jay schneider himself so thank you so much jay thank you and thank you brian <laughs> this is a very special gift so head on over to patreon.com slash magic and become a supporter at the gilder baron level or higher to receive a signed copy of iron claw orcs from jay schneider hurry because supplies are limited This episode of Kitchen Table Magic was brought to you by Paragon City Games. The Kitchen Table Magic podcast has been all about the origins of the game and members of the community. And as a community, we've come a long way since the game first started. Apart from the kitchen table, the only other places in your local community to play magic are at local game stores. And that's why places like Paragon City Games is so important for our community. At Paragon City Games, you'll find a spacious and clean showroom with lots of elbow room for magic events. You'll find thoughtful accessories like die-hard metal dice and handcrafted wooden boxes. You'll find a huge supply of legacy, modern, and standard staples, sealed product, and tabletop games. It's places like Paragon City Games that allow local communities to gather in. And if you can't make it there in person, please be sure to watch their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash ParagonCityGames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They also have great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Card Kingdom. Cardkingdom.com is a great place to shop for Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, pre constructed decks, and gaming accessories. They have a huge selection of singles from the latest sets to an ever flowing supply of modern and legacy staples. Card Kingdom also loves to buy magic cards. They'll offer you cash or in store credit for your magic singles. And if you're new to Magic, you'll love playing any one of the 36 new pre-constructed battle decks built by Card Kingdom. Sign up for Card Kingdom's email newsletter to receive coupon codes and deck techs by Magic Pro Chris Van Meter. You'll get access to Card Kingdom's private reserve, which are special deals for chase rares at significantly discounted prices. Card Kingdom has so much to offer, so I hope you'll check them out. And if you'd like to support Kitchen Table Magic when shopping at Card Kingdom, please use our affiliate link. Just go to cardkingdom.com slash KTM. Okay, and we are back. Jay, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, awesome. Jay, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? Obviously, red uh
1: you know it's the car is the color that i'm best known for but it's also you know, when Rosewater talks about the colors of magic, you know, he talks about, um, you know, red being the color of anger, but it's also the color of passion and freedom and, you know, honestly, in a lot of ways, self-expression. And red, I mean, and the mana curve in the slide deck is just sort of natural flowing, doing things the way that feels right. I love that. Uh,
0: Would you ever... hair red with another color?
1: Um, I've often had to. Um, if I, During my decade of columns, I certainly talked about, you know, I had a slide deck at all times. Every new format, I would talk about what the slide deck would look like. And um, At one point in time, I even had a five-color slide deck, which was out there. It featured... Um, it was in one of, it was in one of the tougher formats, but it was the one that had the land that had the three multicolor counters on it. And a lot of people were playing Suicide Black. Um, but it had, you know, one or two choice, one casting cost cards from every color. Interesting, interesting. you know, Along a slide deck creatures. Huh. It was almost all um, support things. So, like you would play Parrish in black hmm. against the green deck, which of course, you know, would destroy them. And at the same time, you know, it would play, you know, uh, some of the horrible blue hosers. I think
0: it played choke also at the sideboard. <laughs> Jay, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Um,
1: It's hard to talk about. I mean, Magic to me is very different of a concept than to other people. I mean, I look at magic in a much more academic sense. Uh, when I talk about magic these days, and it's usually when I'm teaching at the university of Washington, I teach a game design class and I talk about magic as an exception based game and magic at its purest sense is a true, um, you know, is just an exception-based game applied to Toy Soldiers. The way that I would change magic, I guess, um, is by applying exception-based rules to non-traditional other underlying games, if that makes sense.
0: And <laughs> how can we make more sense from that statement? So, so maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, what could you simplify that? What, what does sure. that mean? What would be an example of that? So, an example
1: of that, I mean, right now I run a game company and there's a project that we're working on where we are basically have created a hybrid of poker games with magic as well. And so if you think about what something like this creature gains flying would mean as applied to a 6 of clubs, it probably wouldn't be flying, but it might be this creature gains a suit or something like that. And we're working on and about to, you know, release a new game involving that type of system. So it's, you know, and I'm actually somewhat working on an answer to your question. <laughs>
0: Very cool. Very cool. Okay, Jay, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every magic player, what would it be? Wow. Um, to every magic player,
1: a good playtest partner. Okay. When I would write my column, one of the things that my column Always started off with was that nothing is created in a vacuum, and um, I credited all the people I play tested with um, most, not not quite present and future or present and past, but I certainly credited Paul and all of them and my current play test team. And having good people to play test with, both, and I mean good both as good people and, you know, people who are, you know, strong and good to play against on a play level is what I would give them
0: all. I love that answer. Jay, question number four, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering?
1: That's kind of a hard question because I have to walk around the things that I know but aren't supposed to know uh, from working in R and D. Obviously, a lot of the future of magic involves digital. There's a lot of directions they can go. I mean, I have things that I hope they'll do. I mean, I you know. I love Duels. Um, I really liked where the team that came after me took Duels to. Um, I am looking forward to the new projects they're working on. They've got great folks there. The new digital team is amazing. They've kept some of the better people from the older days. Um, they still have Mike and Adam, who I mentioned earlier, which gives me unbelievable hope uh, for things going. Um, Oh, and I should also bring up Daryl's there too to help and, you know, we'll certainly dramatically improve the product. So great things from digital.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay. And last, Jay, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience, like where they can find you on social media or whatever?
1: You know, my company is, we work as a design studio for other companies. So, I mean, you can certainly follow me, you know. Um, I'm, you know, on social media. I don't I believe it's keyboard? but um, I should double check it. Look <laughs> it up. Um, but really, um, you know, Opal Media is the company. 13th Age is our primary product, um, but... We also have the new D&D deck builder, um, Dragonfire the game is our, is
0: mine. Jay, I really wanted to thank you for being here today and sharing your stories with me as well as the listening audience and also everyone in the Magic community. You know, one thing that I'm really kind of thinking about right now is when I first wanted to talk to someone about the Paul Sly deck, I just was like, well, where's Paul Sly, right? And so, I was just like, well, even if I could, you know, find Paul Sly, which I couldn't, you know, how would I be able to get in touch with him and, you know, how would I even go about doing that? So, I asked Brian David Marshall, BDM, as well as Randy Bueller. And I was like, you know, who, who can I talk to about this? And they both were like, talk to Jay. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that, you know, surprisingly, we live in the same neighborhood <laughs> and we're here and uh, we get to have this uh, kind of conversation. But also what's so surprising about it being revealed is that just really this concept of the Sly Burn deck or the Sly Red deck was really one of the first decks I had ever sat down to study, to look at and think about from a list perspective. And Rich Hagen and Marshall Sutcliffe and Patrick Chapin and Mike Flores and all the other innovative deck builders and deck thinkers and deck talkers about teaching the game and Scott Vargas and Eric Froelich, they always are talking about these concepts of theory and how to play and craft and build a deck. And just I think back to my magic history, you know, 15 years ago when I was like... I need to really look at a deck list. And it was this Paul Sly red deck. And so many years later, to be sitting in front of and talking to the person who made the deck, it's truly an honor and a privilege. Another thing that I'm also really thinking about is just... All the other contributions you've had to the Magic community. I mean, you started writing feature articles, and you also had to write down this deck list, and you were like, "How am I even going to like sort the cards in this deck list?" Right? And then uh, buying a deck out of a feature article—like it seems like such a no-brainer these days. And that's probably one of the main drivers of how singles and cards even get sold, because really, you know, cards have to be functional; they have to go in decks and things. And all of your work, innovating, uh, deck building, brewing, and then sharing that knowledge and really teaching the community, you know, the magic community have, has come such a long way since 1993, 1994, that's just so significant. And also, not just your community contributions, but your contributions to R&D, playtesting all of those other products, those paper products, but also most importantly, really producing and helping Wizards of the Coast and your other teammates develop Duels of the Planeswalkers, which was a smash hit. And for the longest time, everyone just thought that that was just going to be the future version of, you know, Magic Online. This beautiful, slick interface that just functioned well and really highlighted the game mechanics as well as the cards, as well as the storyline. And, you know, I spoke to Mel Lee and C. Season two and she was like, I worked a lot on Duels of the Planeswalker in terms of campaigns and things like that. And you know that that legacy really lives on. It's been an incredibly popular product. I am a little sad that recently it was announced that you know Duels of the Planeswalker is no longer going to gonna be continued. But at least that DNA and that uh, craftsmanship and that way of thinking about a digital product, most importantly does carry through to whatever Magic Digital Next is. And I also hope that uh, they really take that as a lesson, like a learning moment, that because it was such a smash hit and no one ever thought that it would be, I really hope that the, the VPs and the big wigs, they'll listen to that and say, you know what, if we created something and we really put our minds to it and we really crafted the right team, that a digital product for Magic can be wildly, wildly successful. I just wanted to thank you and acknowledge you, Jay, because you have made such a significant contribution to Magic as a whole and to all the players worldwide. So thank you, Jay.
1: I appreciate it. You realize my head is now swollen 10 times larger. (laughs) You know, my wife's not going to be able to put up with me for a week. (laughs) But thank you for the podcast. And um, you know, it's just great to be able to talk to people, and you know, it's a sort of you, know, it's nice to reminisce about the good old days, and I'm optimistic about where magical takes things. I mean, they have the talent, and you know, in all fairness, the other digital games like Hearthstone that have come after it. Hearthstone has two members of the duels team on it. Uh, Matt Place and uh, Mike Donay, at least, and you know you can sort of see that in the quality of that product as well. Certainly, play test hard. It's kind of what I tell my students in my UW class: play test hard, learn, and have fun while you do it. That's about what it comes down to. <laughs>
0: I had a great time sitting down with Jay to listen to his stories. I'm amazed to hear of Jay's contributions to Duels of the Planeswalkers. It was a milestone for Wizards of the Coast in their journey to create a widely adopted digital game for Magic the Gathering. And now that Magic Arena has been announced, I hope to see some design elements from Duels of the Planeswalkers. If you want to read up more about Jay, I've included links at kitchentablemagic.org to his past articles about the original Paul Sly Red Deck. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters Brian, Marcus, James L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Mark, Aaron M, Neil, James G, Aaron C, Jonathan, Corey, Chad, James E, Logan, The Magic Man Sam, Jesse, Ben, Nick, Eternal Dirtles, Matthias, Charlie, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, and Praskovi. Thank you all so much for your generous support of the show, and listeners, if you'd like to get special gifts from my interviews, become a supporter at patreon.com slash Magic. If you're a new listener to the show, welcome, and I hope you've had the chance to listen to past episodes in Seasons 1 and 2. Season 3 is pretty awesome, and there's a lot of amazing guests that are going to be on the show. Your financial contribution goes to making the show better and keeping it running by helping to pay for audio equipment, software, and server costs. And now that I've partnered with Card Kingdom, there's a new way to support the show. When you shop at Card Kingdom, just use my affiliate link: cardkingdom.com/ktm. Especially with the new Unstable set being released, you're gonna want to buy all of those Borderless Full Art lands by John Avon. A big thank you again to all of my Patreon supporters. Your support of Kitchen Table Magic allows me to share stories about the amazing people in the Magic: The Gathering community with the world. If you haven't heard already, I've created a new YouTube channel called PlayMTG. It's an upbeat, fast-paced YouTube channel featuring deck techs from the pros, learn to play tutorials, level up advice, card discussion, community news and more. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash PlayMTG. Special thanks to Dev for the shoutout on his YouTube channel that helped me get a bunch of new subscribers. I really appreciate your support Dev. Follow the channel on Twitter at play underscore MTG. It's also on Facebook at facebook.com slash play MTG, all one word. I'm looking forward to creating new content and I've got some collaborations and new videos in the works. Be sure to subscribe to Kitchen Table Magic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on Facebook.com/slash Magic Podcast. All of the show notes are at KitchenTablemagic.org. If you're new to the show, there's plenty of past episodes to listen to, and please be sure to share KTM with a friend. Coming up in the next episode of
2: Kitchen Table Magic. We stopped doing a lot of the chess and, and backhand and other kind of basic games related items, but the dice kept on selling. I discovered a factory in Denmark and, and soon we made the speckle dice and I started getting opaque dice from there. And just like any business, you follow the money and the dice were selling, so we kept on doing more dice. I finally met the factory in Germany that makes all the real nice dice. One of the things that I always liked when I played uh, back there was like place in San Francisco called Days, and they had tournaments on Wednesday night and Saturday, and they had a couple sets there that were made out of cattle and plastic, which is a very nice swirly plastic that's still longer made I don't think they even know the formula for it anymore um, It's stopping made because it was a heavy intensive plastic material and when the cost of plastic skyrocketed in the middle 70s from the energy crisis that material became really too expensive to make anymore for any kind of practical use but I really liked the, the look of it and when I met the factory there in Germany they could actually make things that were very similar and I said oh I really liked the dice I figured that other people would too so I decided to make some really nice looking dice you know hoping that other people would like it also well obviously other people did that was the start of it and here we are today I'm talking to Donald Rents,
0: the founder of Chessex, you know, the company that makes all those colorful dice we love. Donald has been in the gaming industry for decades as an avid chess and backgammon player. One day, Donald decided that he needed to take matters into his own hands and make his own beautiful dice. When he found the right factory in Germany, Donald's creativity took off with a myriad of designs and colored combinations. For over 25 years, Donald and Chessex has brought fun and quality to the gaming community. Spoiler alert, remember when I talk about Patreon supporter gifts? Well, you're gonna want to become a Patreon supporter for this next episode. Join me and the founder of ChessX, Donald Rents, as we talk about how the gaming community likes to roll, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.